Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for your work in the world and in and through history. We're grateful even to gather on a morning like today to be reminded about how you have been working, not just 500 years ago with the Protestant Reformation, uh, but how you've been working ever since the very beginning and how you've been drawing men and women and boys and girls to yourself, ultimately through your son Jesus. Encourage us this morning, equip us. Uh, Thank you for um, the fellowship that we share Please even startle us this morning that we might be more faithful in understanding Christ and proclaiming Christ. May we also find ourselves being able, like never before perhaps, to rest in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. I want to begin just by asking you to listen to these words from Jesus. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that good news or bad news? Is that good, a good statement, or a bad statement? It's a great statement, right? Because it's true, it's what Jesus says. But it's a terrible statement to you and to me if we are sinners, if we're related to Adam on our own. You must be perfect. That's the standard. And that is not good news to any of us on our own. Jesus, according to the context of Matthew 5, is for sure talking about God's standard, God's requirement of righteousness. And righteousness has to do with God's law, what He requires. Listen to this, where we read in Matthew, that was Matthew 5, 48. Matthew 5.20, the context, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness, adherence to the divine law, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.17, Do not think, Jesus says, that I've come to abolish the law, the standard for righteousness, or the prophets. According to Jesus, therefore, your greatest need And my greatest need, everyone's greatest need is righteousness. For us to meet God's requirement. For us to respond to God like He's God and to to respect Him. That is your greatest need. That is my greatest need. That is not good news to us. So what's the answer? Ask any little boy or girl in our children's program today and they could just say Jesus and probably be right, right? The answer is Jesus. The answer is not be more to follow Jesus, even though that's really important, because Jesus was perfectly righteous. So if you say, just follow Jesus, the problem is you're not going to be able to do that either. The answer is Jesus, because the Bible teaches that Jesus' righteousness, His adherence to God's standard, is credited to us when we believe. Okay? Next year we're going to have our conference on that very reality, the reality of imputation. But we're not doing that this morning. But it really is what's so good and positive for us that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to get rid of the law. But before we get to the good news side of things, when we hear Jesus say, you must be perfect, he means righteousness. Some of us don't like that so much that we like to say things like, well, like we don't think the Sermon on the, Sermon on the Mount is actually for us. I'm kind of sympathetic toward that as a sinner. I kind of would like that as a sinner. You know what? That doesn't really apply to me. That's for a different dispensation. That was easy. 
The problem is, Jesus says the same thing elsewhere. And I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. The 10th chapter of Luke. Jesus says the same thing in a different setting. And I already know where some of you are going in your mind, perhaps. You're going to say, yeah, I know Jesus teaches that, but I actually think Paul teaches something else. I can't wait to show you Romans. Paul says the same thing. So we're talking about God's law first before we really talk about God's gospel because one of the great things, preview folks, that happened as a result of the Protestant Reformation was that there was a recovery of the distinction between God's law and God's gospel. Rome had blended it and Rome had been promoting gospel. Okay? The problem with gospel is it ruins the law and it ruins the gospel. And so Martin Luther, John Calvin, those who followed them, the big guns of the Protestant Reformation, did a great, great service to us, and God used them to recover the distinction between law and gospel. So that's what we're talking about in this session. But I want to make sure we all understand what God's law requires, what it is, and then we can understand gospel good news, okay? Told you we are going to go fast, intense. Luke chapter 10. Those of you who know me well, Theology for Breakfast men, know that I probably was going to go to Luke chapter 10. You'd be disappointed if I didn't go to Luke chapter 10. Luke 10, 25. A classic passage that we classically get wrong if we're not thinking clearly in light of the Protestant Reformation. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer, an expert in the law, stood up and put him to the test, put Jesus to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? First thing I want you to notice is, the subject at hand is eternal life. It's not something else. It's not temporal life. Eternal life. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus masterfully bounces the ball back to him. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with your heart and with all your excuse me, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. In every way God requires, including motives, in every way necessary, you you have to respond to God according to His godness and according to his, His expectations. So love Him with heart, soul, mind, and strength and then love image bearers in a similar kind of way, which obviously shows love to God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love other human beings. Then please make sure you notice. In verse 28, And He said to him, Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Then make sure you understand, and, and I highlighted, Do this, and you will live. And if you're an underliner or a circler, you want to connect, Do this, and you will live, in verse 28, with verse 25 at the end, eternal life. So when he says do this and live, Jesus doesn't mean temporal life, have a wonderful life, have a blessed life. He means what? He means eternal life. He most definitely means eternal life. So what we're seeing is God's expectation. Jesus makes it clear that the way to gain eternal life is to love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly and you will have eternal life. Is that good news? That's not good news. It's not good news for that attorney. It's not good news for any of us. 
But it is true, okay, to quote the Apostle Paul when he refers to God's law. It is good because it's right. But it's not good news. We have to have this clear. This is, this is the principle of the law. Then people say, well, the Apostle Paul, we know he didn't teach that because he was the, the Apostle of grace. Here we go, doing gospel again. Let's let the law have its weightiness and go to Romans. Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 8. But let's go to Romans 2 just for a quick sampling. If we're going to get the gospel right, we've got to get the law right. We've got to see that the requirement for eternal life is doing the right thing. Obeying God's law. Jesus summarizes God's laws. Love God, love neighbor. So, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 is a classic complement to Luke chapter 10. 2.13 For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous, law upholders, that's what righteous means, who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Who's going to be declared righteous? That's what justified means. The ones who are going to be declared righteous are the doers of the law. We already know based on what Jesus says. Doers of the law it would be those who love God and love neighbor. Perfectly. That's a statement of logical fact. What's the problem? I like to say, and I say all the time around here, it's a really short line. God doesn't declare righteous people who aren't righteous. That would be unrighteous. Be unjust. Those who are the doers of the law, God declares doers of the law. That's what it is. And what's masterful in Romans is the Apostle Paul is building an argument and he's moving toward chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10, any of you have it memorized? How many are righteous? There's no none righteous. No, not one. But he's making the truthful point that those who are righteous will be declared righteous because God isn't going to do things that don't make sense. The problem is by the time he builds his argument into chapter 3, there's nobody in that line. Nobody in that line. What we're seeing is God's law. Thunderously so. And it's good and it's right and it's logical. But what we need is, according to chapter 4, a God who justifies the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. And how could He do that? He could only do that because Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Back to Matthew 5, yeah? To fulfill the law. To fulfill the law. So the bad news is, for sinners like you and like me, we can't do what's expected. The good news is, Jesus did what was expected as our substitute. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Oh no. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Oh yes! Right there in that verse, we have law. And we have gospel. And we look not to ourselves, but to Christ. Matthew 3.15, But Jesus answered him, Let it be, be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Just You can jot it down for the sake of time. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9 is classic. The Apostle Paul says, To be found in Him that is united to Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, It's impossible for him because he's in Adam. He's united to Adam. But that which comes through faith or trust or rest in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. It's awesome good news. It's righteousness provided, given as a gift from God because of Christ. And how does it become ours? It becomes ours through faith, through trusting in Jesus. Okay? Changes everything. Changes absolutely everything. Law and gospel. What God has separated, let no man join together to do opposite of marriage vows. Law is what God requires. Gospel is what God provides. Martin Luther's maxim was this, 500 years ago. The law always accuses. Law doesn't save. And yet he went on to say, you should never understand the gospel to mean anything but the divine promise of God's grace and of the forgiveness of sins. Likewise, Calvin said, the law only begets death. It increases our condemnation and inflames the the wrath of God. The law of God speaks, but it does not reform our hearts. But in the gospel, God does not say, you must do this or that, but, but believe that my son is your redeemer. Embrace his death and passion as the remedy of your ills. Plunge yourself beneath his blood and it will be your cleansing. And those statements, they're on the same page, are, are worlds apart from Aquinas. The Roman Catholic, whose maximum was, maxim was more along these lines. The gospel is the new law. The gospel isn't the new law. Jesus isn't the kinder, gentler Moses. People say things like that. Oh, it was really hard in the old, but then in the new, Jesus is the kinder and gentler Moses. Sermon on the Mount. Read the Sermon on the Mount. He's not kinder and gentler. He just tightens the screws. Not because he's mean or bad, but because people were failing to see the distinction, the requirement of what God's law really requires. And they were starting to think they could do it. What we need is a doer who is not one of us. We need Christ to do it for us. Gospel. 501 years ago this week, Martin Luther, I'm told, Martin Luther started lecturing on the book of Galatians. And it's amazing how the Bible distorts your view of God. (laughs) And his view got distorted. In actuality, it didn't get distorted. It became clear. God requires perfect, absolute obedience. And the gospel isn't a new law. The gospel is the good news to sinners that God justifies the ungodly. And it changed everything. Changed absolutely everything. So what I would like to do in the time that we have remaining, once I get warmed up, I need some more of that mushroom elixir. Don't get close to me after the conference. Coming out of my pores or something. What we're going to do is eight reasons. So if you need an outline, I'll give you an outline. Eight reasons to rediscover. No, let's have it be different. Eight reasons to re-rediscover. 
the distinction between law and gospel. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, all of these great Protestant reformers that we appreciate, they did not find this out for the first time. Protestants do not believe Christianity started 500 years ago. We believe that God has been working in the world ever since the very beginning. But we do believe that God worked after a whole lot of darkness in the medieval times with lots of theological confusion. We do believe that God worked through individual men and women to rediscover things like the distinction between law and gospel. But I think we need to re-rediscover because I don't think the Reformation is over. Because the battle lines are still there and we're still confused. We still talk like we believe in gospel. It's amazing how many people I talk to, and if I ask them the question the right way, they will hear me say something like, is the essence of Christianity, the essence of Christianity, love God and love your neighbor, true or false? And how many of them say yes? The essence of Christianity is love God and love neighbor? Last time I checked from Jesus, that is the essence of the law. And the law isn't good news. For sinners, it's good because it's righteous and holy because it comes from God, but it's not good news. The essence of Christianity is the gospel, the good news about Christ who fulfills God's law for us. See, our problem is we don't love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. That's law and we're condemned under that law, justly so. So we need gospel, good news, Jesus to do it for us, right? And so if you already know this stuff, awesome. But there's a whole lot of people that don't know this. I talk to them all the time. Some of them have theological degrees. We're supposed to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's what's good and it's what's right and it's what's holy. It's what we're made to do, but we don't. And therefore, we stand under condemnation. So we need Christ's righteousness credited to us by faith. That's gospel news. Eight reasons to re-rediscover the law gospel. I'm going to call it a law gospel paradigm. Number one, it is vital to justification by faith alone. It is vital to justification by faith alone. If you're still in Romans, I'm not really sure if you are or you're not, but I'm going to be in Romans, and I just want to ever so quickly touch on Romans 2, Romans 3, and then Romans 4. They're texts we've either already looked at or I've already referenced. But remember, justification by faith alone is really important. Because in in Galatians 1, if you don't have the justification question right, then you're you're not within the Christian world. (laughs) You don't have peace with God. You're condemned. Romans chapter, excuse me, Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. So it's not just about a, 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 a trifle debate. But if we don't have law, gospel, distinction clear, paradigm clear, we're going to get ourselves in trouble when it comes to justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So if you just look at Romans 2.13, which we already looked at, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. 
Okay, that, that's in principle true. It's absolutely true. It's not good news, but it's true. And then I'm going to next go to Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Oh, see, I have to make sure I don't forget about that when I'm interpreting and reading chapter 2, verse 13, or I'm going to deny justification by faith alone. But then I go to Romans chapter 4, verse 5. So let's have this, this wonderful kind of string of pearls, if you will. And 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes or trusts or rests in Him, that is Christ, or, or that is God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith, that's faith in Christ, is counted or credited as righteousness. See what I was doing in putting those together? We have an initial answer to Romans 2.13 and Romans 3.10. But then we have the filling out of the answer even fuller regarding Jesus in Romans chapter 4 verse 5. See, God really and truly and genuinely does justify ungodly people. There's no way for me to read Romans 2.13 and say, that's right and I better get busy. Like lots of people do, unfortunately. If I read it in light of chapter 3, and if I read it in light of Jesus in chapter 4. It's so amazing, Romans chapter 4, verse 5. It doesn't say, him who justifies the godly, read doers of the law, because there aren't any. So we've got to remember this, or, or, or we're going to, I want to say lose our minds, but I'm afraid I'm going to say lose our souls. Number two, it keeps us Protestant. Another reason to re-rediscover this is it keeps us Protestant. Sometimes I think maybe it's just because people don't want to stay Protestant. I wouldn't be the first one to say that you find out pretty quickly whether someone's really a Protestant based upon the way they deal with Romans 2.13. It's a law gospel paradigm. I do like John Calvin on this text. I was just talking to Pastor Mike Holloway. He said, well, I've got to, I made sure I, he's going to give one of the third hour talks. And he said, I made sure to add some, lots of Calvin and Luther quotes. I said, so did I. <laughs> just a normal sermon, but you just have to add Calvin and Luther quotes. Happy Reformation. Um, I really like this from Calvin. Calvin has a, a propensity of calling people stupid, so maybe I kind of like that. Um, but he doesn't swear as often as Luther does, so I think I'm more sanctified if I like Calvin more. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. I should stick to my notes. They, they, were, they were men of their times. Someone said it'd be, it'd be great to invite Luther over to a bonfire, but not a dinner party. Okay, Invite Calvin to the dinner party, but he'll still call you stupid. Anyway. Listen to what Calvin says about Romans 2.13. It is insightful. The important, the import then of this verse is the following. That if righteousness be sought from the law, the law must be fulfilled. For the righteousness of the law consists in the perfection of works. Not trying, the perfection of works. Here's my favorite part. They who pervert this passage for the purpose of building up justification by works, deserve most fully to be laughed at even by children. 
Don't interpret Romans 2.13 to the degree where Calvin says, even little kids should laugh at you. You're not even promoting the Protestantism you confess. It is therefore improper and beyond what is needful to introduce here a long discussion on the subject with the view to exposing futile sophistry, empty philosophy. Now we do not deny but that, that perfect righteousness is prescribed in the law. But as all are convinced of transgression, convicted of transgression, we say that another righteousness must be sought, see, outside of us. Still more, we can prove from this passage that no one is justified by works. For if they alone are justified by the law, who fulfill the law? It follows that no one is justified. No one can be found who can boast of having fulfilled the law. That's right. I almost don't want to encourage you to go home and look at your commentaries and see what leading theologians are saying about Romans 2.13. You'd be better off to read Calvin on Romans 2.13. You'd be better off to read Charles Hodge on Romans 2.13, old school. You'd be better off to read the Apostle Paul in context on Romans 2.13. Because I really do want you to stay Protestant. Let's move on to number three. It is a third reason for, to, to re-rediscover. It is fair to all of Scripture. It is fair to all of Scripture. In the Old Testament, is there law? Yes. In the Old Testament, is there grace? Yes. Even in Genesis. You guys are way above the curve, by the way, just in answering yes. We shouldn't be here. We should be downtown evangelizing or something in West Omaha evangelizing. There's law and grace in the Old Testament. Is there law in the New Testament? We just read Luke chapter 10. Jesus. It's all over Romans. Yes. Is there grace in the New Testament? Duh, right? Of course there is. But, but my point is, this, this is trans-testamental, right? This is everywhere. This is how God has always worked. Yes, there's progressive revelation. But in principle, it's always been this way. Jesus in Luke 10, New Testament, quotes Leviticus 18. Do this and live. It's, it's how it's always been. It's, it was that way with Adam, but it's explicitly sta- stated, do this and live by Jesus in the New Testament. And then we have do this and live explicitly stated in Leviticus. Oh, and by the way, the Apostle Paul, when he gets to Romans 2.13, he's essentially saying the same thing. Romans chapter 10, he's saying the same thing. In principle, it's always been that way. And in, right? Does that make sense? And then what's so amazing is, oh, let's go to another place. Let's go Psalm 14, none righteous, no, not one. New Testament, Romans chapter 3, none righteous, no, not one. It's the same. And in Romans chapter 4, Old Testament saints like Abraham and David were justified by works. No, they're justified by faith, right? The same way. And then, obviously, we're in Romans chapter 4, and Paul's talking to people who are New Testament people, and they're justified by faith also. It's the same. It's the same. What's the ad? It's the same thing. This, this law gospel paradigm works throughout the whole thing. Lots of people have fallen into the trap. Old Testament law, New Testament gospel. It simply isn't true 
Number four. How many are we doing? Eight? Better hurry up. We have snacks after this. Probably more coffee. (laughs) Number four. It disciples the church. It disciples the church. This was not meant to be some kind of esoteric, philosophical, heady thing that people couldn't understand that the Protestant reformers rediscovered. It was actually meant for training pastors, yes. But it was meant for training people like you and like me. It was for training children. Think of the historical context. What's gone on? We've got the Roman Catholic Church that's been saying new law. You just got to do more, try harder, and God will help you, and then eventually you'll be justified by your works. Misusing Romans chapter 2. And now all of a sudden you've got people who are believing that that's not true anymore, but now what do we do? Oh, and now we have printing presses in God's providence, and now we have translations of Bibles. It's not just in Latin anymore. Now we have Bibles, if we're Germans, like Abendroth, right? We probably couldn't read from my, <laughs> from my background. But if, if Germans like me could read, we would have it in our language. And the Bible is a huge book. And it's complicated. And in, we just saw in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you're told to do this and live. And I might be apt to go back to Rome because they show me do this and live and I'm supposed to do this and live. And I believe the Bible is true. So the law gospel paradigm is a great discipler. And helping people, helping boys and girls know this is what God requires. And we can't meet the requirement. And that's why we need to look to Jesus to meet the requirement for us. And we believe in Him. And when we believe in Him, God credits His obedience to to us. Even to the point of death on a cross to atone for our sins. See, this is not meant to be complicated. This is meant to be super simple. That we can get this. I can teach this to my kids. You can teach this to your kids. I read through the Bible. Here's a helpful quote. Let's do. Let's go a little later. Not just Luther and Calvin. Uh, not quite early reformer, but 1558 to 1602 is when William Perkins lived. He wrote a classic book on preaching, a beginner's guide to preaching. So let's assume we're all beginner preachers here. The basic. This isn't complicated. The basic principle and application of the Bible is to know whether the passage is a statement of the law or of the gospel. So it's like the first thing you need to know. Is this law or is this gospel? Husbands, love your wives. Law or gospel? We love our wives. You're wonderful and you bring good things to our lives. But it's law, right? It's a command. It's an imperative. It's what God requires. And it's good and it's righteous and holy. But it's law. Love you, honey. <laughs> And, and actually, we're going to talk about gospel promoting our desire to do that for the glory of God, but that's a little bit ahead. I'm going to skip the rest of that quotation, but it's from a book called The Art of Prophesying or The Art of Preaching. It's an excellent quotation, but we're running out of time. By the way, Protestant confessions, which we'll talk about in the next session, also modeled this for us. They're, they're very good about observing the law-gospel distinction because they're trying to disciple the people and help them to be discerning. Number five, it guards against both legalism and license. If you have the law-gospel paradigm, you can guard against legalism and license. Legalism is when you say, you must do these things for God to accept you. Read Romans 2. Out of context, you'll be a legalist. 
read Romans 2 in context, you won't be a legalist. You'll say, Christ fulfills the law for me. So if we have that clear, we're not going to be legalists. Do more, try harder, you must. You're terrified of going to hell. This is terrible because I haven't done enough and I know God only justifies the doers of the law. We're going to avoid that. The other side of it is we can avoid license. If you want to use the fancy term antinomianism. They were not saying, Luther was not saying, Calvin was not saying, the Bible doesn't teach that you just then do whatever you want to do. And this is for a whole other session, a whole other seminar. I just at least want to say they, they, they were nuanced in their views of things. They, they understood that every time the word law is used in the Bible, it's not always used exactly the same way. Sometimes it's used for Mosaic law. Sometimes it's used for the law of God written on the heart, Romans chapter 2. You have to look at the context to figure out which one it is. And they also discovered, not invented, discovered that the law of God works differently in people's lives. Oh, I, I skipped one. There's the law for Israel, the, na- the nation of Israel. A unique kind of law. But here's where I wanted to go, sorry. <sighs> Too much happening up here. Usually not enough happening up here. <sighs> but the law of God works differently in people's lives depending on where they are in their relationship with God. Okay? So they end up saying, it's clear the law of God condemns us. It convicts us and condemns us. Right? I can't do this. That's right. That's why you need Jesus. But it also then, as a believer, guides us. Too much information for some of you, but in, in, in Reformed theology, they ended up referring to this as the third use of the law, depending on how you number them, but usually it's called the third use of the law. Um, the, oftentimes the first use ends up being uh, for civil government restraining evil. We don't usually talk about that one. Then the other one is the teaching and convicting one leading us to Christ one. And third use is usually then as a guide. What's what's good for you? It's what's directing you. Yes, I'm called to love my wife, but not as uh, a requirement for my justification. Because I'm in Christ already. I've trusted in Christ and I've been justified by God. And now, uh, now that I'm a new creature in Christ, now that I have new affections, new desires, and I know that God's law is good, I want to do the right thing. This is like the psalmist where the psalmist talks about the law of God is a light unto our path. See, that's good. That's positive. It's not antagonistic. But that really takes us kind of off the beaten path, but I at least wanted to acknowledge it. This does not make us antinomian. This is where like um, some Protestant reformers, like with the Heidelberg Catechism, they talk about guilt, grace, and gratitude. It shows you your guilt. Grace in Christ, the law does. And then out of gratitude, you want to do the right thing. Number six, it has been forgotten and attacked. It has been forgotten and attacked. When we have a distinction between what God requires and what God provides, and that they're different, we end up seeing clearly about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We, we see Christ in His work clearly, that Jesus paid it all. Okay, That when He says it is finished, it is finished. But when we fail to see the distinction, we end up blurring the lines because we think there's still something that needs to be done. And so, insofar as we've forgotten about this distinction, that feeds into forgetting about the finished work of Christ. 
And I know that they, they can go back and forth and it's not always clear which comes first and how they relate together. But if we don't have this clear, history shows us we end up not having the gospel clear. And, and we, we forget and we forget easily. It makes us vulnerable. I want you so badly. I was just talking to a friend and he was talking about, I could, he said, I could teach this to kids. You said you teach your kids this to kids? I could teach this to kids. Why are people confused about this? I said, I don't know. As Robert Godfrey said, I read this past week, it's a spiritual problem, first and foremost, all these debates. It's not that, it's not that complicated. God requires perfect righteousness. We can't and we don't. Christ provides it. That's what good news, gospel. So I'll name some different people who've forgotten this and end up wreaking havoc in the church. Some of them you've never heard of before. Some of them you have. But they are alive and, and well. We see this in the federal vision movement. And they want to end up flattening law and gospel. Okay? A lot of times it's to try to get people to behave. I want to get people to behave out of gratitude and because they have a new nature, not because their justification awaits something that they do. New Perspectives on Paul and N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright is a great debater. He's a clear writer. He's winsome. But he has said all sorts of things that would blur law and gospel. And he has a tendency to change his arguments. And so then when you criticize him, then you look wrong because he's changed his argument yet again. But to quote D.A. Carson, he is slippery. He's a hard one to figure. But N.T. Wright is really, really influential in the world that we live in and in evangelicalism. Now, a name you may not know, but perhaps you're more familiar because it's not so associated with the academy, would be John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby, who's considered the father of dispensationalism, is confusing also. He's very argumentative in his readings, and John Nelson Darby... I'm going to overstate this, hates to have anything to do with the law relating to Christians. Because in his mind, he oversimplifies and law generalizes only for Israel. And so law has nothing to do with Christians or in the church age. And this leads to all kinds of problems. Maybe it leads to some of his legalism. The way to fall into legalism is to say there's no law. (laughs) Because then you just invent new laws. If you want to emphasize law, in one sense, it's the greatest way to protect against legalism. The law is in effect. We saw in the last session, New Testament, Old Testament. That's why you need Christ's law-keeping obedience credited to you by faith and by faith alone. Darby hated the idea and just goes on and on and on how Christ did not fulfill the law as a legal representative on our behalf. So he undercuts imputation, he undercuts, and he leaves us in a bad spot. I read a whole book on him not too long ago, and how, how, many, how so many respected people in the Brethren movement just wanted to distance themselves from John Nelson Darby because he ended up being so confusing on imputation and justification. So again... Maybe that has something to do with your background. It has something to do with my background. It's like, oh, no wonder. But see, the Protestant reformers saw that law doesn't always mean the same thing. Sometimes it's Mosaic law. Yeah, that doesn't have to do with us as far as uh, 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 the nation of Israel. Because we're not the nation of Israel. That's, that's different. 
But in principle, law is, according to Jesus, what? Love God, love neighbor. Luke chapter 10. That's in effect. So that would be an undermining. You know, speaking of dispensationalism, uh, and some of you love dispensationalism, and I'm not saying you can't love dispensationalism. But... It has been confusing when you have seven dispensations, seven different epochs of time to, tr- to figure out how history works, okay? And you call one of the dispensations the dispensation of law, and it's over. And another dispensation, a dispensation of grace, and they're not related. Even if that's not what the founders meant to have happen, a layperson like me for a lot of years read the Bible through that lens. And it was natural for me, maybe it's natural for you, to conclude that since we're in a dispensation of grace, we have nothing to do with law because that was a different dispensation. I realize not all dispensationalists are trying to accomplish that. But I am saying it's led to a lot of confusion because there's law in the old and grace in the old. And there's law in the new and there's grace in the new. And they needed Christ in the old They needed to have righteousness credited to them, and we need Christ-credited righteousness in the new as well because we are not obedient to God's standard. I have this book here by Daniel Fuller called The Unity of the Bible. Okay, You probably don't know who Dan Fuller is, um, but he's the mentor to John Piper. Okay, So you know who he is. Dan Fuller said, there can no longer be any antithesis in the biblical theology between law and gospel. There cannot be any antithesis between law and gospel. And he's famous for teaching this. Because he promotes what I'm going to call gospel. See, Dan Fuller, unity of the Bible despised dispensationalism, seven dispensations. They chopped it up too much, according to his opinion. And so what does he do? He overswings to the opposite extreme and says everything is flat and there are no distinctions. And he ended up teaching a form of justification by faithfulness. And I don't mean Jesus' faithfulness. I mean your faithfulness. A form of justification by works. So this stuff is alive and well, and we might not even know who's influenced by this sort of thing, but it definitely is alive and well. I'm not going to name any more names or or people or anything like that, but I want you to just be thinking in terms of, and even think, think to yourself, I don't have to know everybody who's involved. I don't have to know all the isms and spasms and schisms. But what I do need to know is, There is a law, there is a gospel, and they're not the same. If you know that, you can be a discerning Christian. So I'll just leave it at that. If you want to snoop at my notes, you can. If you want to see who wrote the foreword to this book, you can do that, but I'll just leave it here and just see those of you who are tempted to see who it is. Number seven, it guards against robbing Christ. A clear distinction between law and gospel guards against robbing Christ. Philippians chapter 2 is the passage I want to go to. I'm going to go there quick. I need to speed it up. I'm kind of losing my, my edge. We've got to get going. So Philippians chapter 2 is the text. Christ should be honored and exalted. Why should He be honored and exalted? Not because He enabled us to do it. 
Christ should be honored and exalted because He did it. And when we don't have a distinction between what God requires and what God provides, we're going to think somehow it's Jesus and us. And it's not Jesus and us. It's all Christ. Philippians chapter 2 is super helpful. Okay? Everyone has a category for works. The question is, are you going to let Christ do the works? Or are you going to do the works? Or is it going to be a mixture of the two? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, familiar text, but maybe you haven't paid attention, and I'm going to encourage you to pay attention. Have this mindset or mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, humbled himself by taking the form of a servant. I emphasize that word because it's a specific title that's used for this this covenant-keeping servant, the one who's been enlisted, the one who's been called upon, and the one who's going to obey as a representative. Taking the form of a servant, borrowed from Isaiah in the Old Testament. There's all kinds of meaning into that. The form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. He is the faithful servant representative. And what does a faithful servant representative do? They become obedient. They obey. To the point of death, even death on a cross. What happens because of His obedience as a covenant servant? Nine, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. And I'm going to stop there even though I don't want to. The, the idea is, is clear, but sometimes we miss it. Jesus Christ is the faithful servant who obeyed to the nth degree, even to the point of death on a cross. And what happens because of His perfect obedience? See, I'm using that terminology because it's legal terminology. It's law terminology. Because He fulfills the law, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God highly exalts Him. If you don't have Him being the one who's highly exalted because you see yourself for some reason or another as the faithful covenant servant and you're obedient because you know you got to obey to have God justify you, it would make logical sense that you would be highly exalted. Name above all names and we will praise you. Yuck! It's no wonder the Protestant Reformers had their slogan, it's salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. How do we know this? Because of the authority of, the ultimate authority of Scripture alone. I want to challenge you with the fact that everyone has a category for merit. Whether we'll admit it or not. Everyone has a category for works and obedience. For justification whether we admit it or not. I just want to encourage you to let Jesus be the faithful servant and let Jesus have all of the glory who's successful. And my conclusion, and all God's people said, (laughs) in conclusion, number eight, another compelling reason to re-rediscover the gospel, the law gospel paradigm, and that's this, it isn't only for Lutherans and Presbyterians. Say that with a little bit of smile on my face. But some people think, oh, that, that's just for, the, for those kinds of people that come out of the Protestant Reformation. But you know what? I, I'm actually not one of them. I'm a Baptist. Well, there's no better Baptist than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And here's what he says. The doctrine of the divine covenant, he's using different languages to talk about what we're talking about, lies at the root of all true theology. 
It has been said that he who well understands the distinction between the covenant of works, that's just another way of saying law, and the covenant of grace, that's just another way of saying gospel, okay, covenant is a formal agreement, is a master of divinity. If you understand the difference between the law of God and the gospel of God, you are a master theologian. I love it. I am persuaded, Spurgeon says, that most of the mistakes which men make concerning the doctrines of Scripture are based upon fundamental errors with regard to the covenants of law and grace, law and gospel. And to that, I, like a Baptist in my heart, say amen and amen. It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated, but Jesus really is a masterful, amazing Savior who saves by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone.